We're going to continue what we discussed six months ago about the Russia-Ukraine war. Uh, it ties into the holiday. So if you look on Sukkot, what do we read? What are the Haftorahs that we read on All Sukkot? All the going to come to celebrate Sukkot? Yeah, so, well, that's, like, that's the end of it. Uh, but the first, what we just read on the first day, the Haftarah of the first day was Chariah chapter 14, which talks about the final war at the end of the days, from one perspective. And, and then... Well, it does say something about Sukkot, which we'll get to. It doesn't say it's going to start on Sukkot, but it does end with Sukkot. Oh, really? Yeah, and then on this Shabbat, we're going to read, the Haftarah will be Yechezkel chapter 38, which is the whole war of Gog and Magog. That's where Gog and Magog comes from, the term that we've all heard, this like apocalyptic war, end of days war. It comes from Yechezkel, Ezekiel, chapter 38. So we read on Sukkot, the Aftarot are somehow related to this final apocalyptic war. And we have to explain why, like what's the connection. So one of the main themes, this is one of the themes of Sukkot. Gog and Magog is tied to the holiday of Sukkot. So what's the connection? That's one thing that we have to answer. And we also want to tie it in to, again, what's going on with Russia, Ukraine because we spoke about it six months ago. It's time for an update and to see what's happening and uh, to, to go further because we, at the very end, last time we introduced the idea of perhaps could Russia be the Magog figure entity that was prophesied. So we want to look into that in more depth and see if that's a possibility. What's going on right now with Russia, also with Iran, because things are... Uh, going wild in Iran, and what does all this have to do with Gogu Magog and Sukkot and so on? So, a quick some recap, and also what we suggested last time. First of all, like the main kind of thesis hypothesis was based on a prophecy in Masechet Sanhedrin, which says that there will be three Romes, but not a fourth Rome that Rome will fall three times, but there will not be a fourth Rome, meaning the Messianic age will begin before there could be a, third, a fourth Rome. So the first Rome was Rome itself, the original Roman Empire, Roman Italy, and then once that fell, the second Rome was Constantinople, which is today Istanbul in Turkey, and then once that fell, the third Rome was said to be Moscow. And the Prophecy is that when the third, after the third Rome falls, there will not be a fourth Rome. The Messianic age will begin before then. So we talked about that last time. And so the idea is, is this war, what we said six months ago when it was just beginning, we didn't know where it was going to go, but the hypothesis was, will this war lead to the fall of Russia and the unraveling of Russia? And is that the fall of the third Rome? That is a sign of the messianic age so now six months later it seems like that's very much happening because russia is really not doing well what started out as a small what they call the small special military operation is now a full-scale war and russia has now had to call up three hundred thousand reservists and basically bring back the draft and uh, that's not a good sign and now many Russians are fleeing Russia, many young people that have no will to fight, and the narrative is starting to change. Russians that were kind of afraid to speak out are now speaking out and running away, and so things are not going so well for Russia. The other thing we talked about last time is Ukraine joining NATO, which would be potentially catastrophic because it would inevitably, sooner or later, lead to World War III because of all the disputed territories. And sooner or later, that's like a powder keg waiting to go boom. And sooner or later, somebody will do something and that'll, NATO will have to get involved and that'll be for sure a global war. And recently, Ukraine actually applied for an express membership to NATO, which again, could be very, I mean, the reality is, is that it's already a global war. This is already a global war. It's not Ukraine against Russia. It's Ukraine with all the West behind Ukraine. If the West was not supporting Ukraine, it would have been over a long time ago. It's the Western firepower and military intelligence and support and everything. Uh, yeah, and then there's, there's been a threat now of nuclear war. And we'll see how that might tie into a prophecy in Tanakh. Because in Zechariah, in the Haftor that we already read, it says something that 
people, something is referring to something nuclear. So we'll get to that in a moment. We, we really want to explore those two texts, Zechariah, Zechariah 14, Ezekiel 38. And also we want to look at a, a section from the Zohar, Parashat Balak, which also talks about the end of days and the sequence of, the, the sequence of events at the end of days. All three of these are really talking about the same thing. Zechariah, Yechezkel, and the Zohar are actually talking about from three different perspectives, but it's the same thing. So we're going to explore those three texts. We'll start with uh, Yechezkel 38, because that's where, that's where the um, term Gogu Magog actually comes from. So we'll start. That's what we're going to look at. Yeah, that's what we want to start with. So Ezekiel 38, which directly follows the famous prophecy or vision of the dry bones uh, right after. That was chapter 37, where God shows Ezekiel a bunch of skeletons, these dry bones, and he says, will they live again? And Ezekiel says, how would I know? You, you know. Uh, and then God brings them back to life and resurrects the dead. That's one of the key sources for the resurrection of the dead. And we'll come back to that. So the prophecy right after, the next chapter, begins like this. Ve'id Hashem so the word of God came upon Ezekiel, Yechezkel, and he said, Ben Adam, so we mentioned before that God often refers to the prophets as Ben Adam, like human, or son of man, or literally human. Sim panecha el Gog, so turn your face to Gog, this individual Gog, Eretz HaMagog, apparently from the land of Magog, so there's a figure named Gog, and again, there's a code word, so we also have to Think about what is Gog. I mean, it's not like literally the spirit. We shouldn't expect a person named Gog to appear in history. That would be too obvious. Uh, why Gog? What is this code word? One of the meanings behind it, since we're already here, is if you look at Gog, Gimel, Vav, Gimel, it's very similar to another name. Who's, who's it similar to? To David, right? David is Dalet, Vav, Dalet. So the messianic figure is David. David is the David Melech Israel Chai Vekayam, that Mashiach is King David, essentially, the return of King David. So the adversary of Gog is David. And there's a, you can think about the connection there. David, Gog. What do these names mean? One over the other. So Gog leads to David. One leads to the other. Okay, so Ben Adam Simpanecha El Gog, Eretz Amagog, Nasi Rosh Meshach Vetuval. So this Gog person is the Nasi, the president. And then it says, Rosh, Meshech, Vetuval. So now the, the word Rosh here is, what does that mean? Does he mean Nasi Rosh? Does that mean he is like the head president? Because Rosh also means the head. So does that mean that he's the top president? Or does that mean he's the president, Nasi, of a place called Rosh and Meshech and Tuval? Not clear. And that's where some people, which I, I personally don't like it, but based on the alliteration of Rosh, Meshech, supposedly being like Russia, Moscow. I personally don't like it. I think maybe it's coincidental. I don't know. But nothing's coincidental. Maybe there is a connection there. Uh, but Rosh Meshach Vetuval. So Gog is the president of Meshach Vetuval, but he's from Magog, apparently. So there's some connect. There's like potentially four different lands mentioned here. Vein So uh, prophesy to Gog. That's what God is telling Ezekiel to do. Now, who is Magog? That's the question. What is this? We're, we have like potentially four different lands mentioned here. What are these places? Meshech, Tuval, Magog. What are these places? Okay. And the Talmud. Signs, they were also signs in the, the beginning. Of, uh... Good. That's what we're going to get to. So these places are mentioned in Parashat Noach, in Genesis, in the Table of Nations, <clears throat> chap, uh, chapter 10 over there, before the, the, the Tower of Babel story. So it talks about the 70 root nations of the world, right? Our tradition is that all the peoples of the world come from 70 root nations. So even though today we have over 200 different countries, all these countries actually stem from 70 roots. And each of these places has a heavenly prince. They're called heavenly princes. They're angels. God appointed an angel over each of these 70 nations. That's something that you see throughout it's referenced in the Tanakh and in the Talmud and in the Midrash everywhere. And the Jewish people are not one of those 70. We are distinct from the 70. There's, we are described as like a sheep among 70 wolves. 
but we are one, and then there's 70 others, and they all have a prince appointed over each one, uh, an angel overseeing each one, and we do not, meaning because our angel is Hashem directly. Israel is, as we said before, before Yashar El, that God himself watches over Israel. Although having said that, we also speak of Michael, the angel Michael, being our kind of guardian angel of the Jewish people, Michael. So the Talmud in Masechet Yoma now once explains who these people are. It, it follows a discussion of why it is that Koresh, Cyrus, had the merit to build the te- to allow the Jews to rebuild the temple. Remember the Babylonians destroyed the first temple. For 70 years, Israel was exiled, the Babylonian exile, we were stuck there. Then Cyrus, the king of Persia, took over, destroyed Babylon. Now Persia became the new top dog on, on the map. And Cyrus actually allowed the Jews to come back and rebuild their temple. So the Talmud actually says, what is their schut? Like, where did the, how did that happen? And it says that really Cyrus and the Persians come from not who we would think, from Shem, but they come from Yefet. Remember, we have Noach had three sons, Shem, Ham, Yefet. And traditionally, we say Shem is the father of all the Asian nations, or at least the Middle Eastern nations. Ham is the father of Africa, which literally means hot, Ham. And Yefet was the father of the European nations. So we generally split the old world, has like three continental chunks, Europe, Asia, Africa, corresponding to Shem, Ham, and Yefet. So Shem is like the Asians, Ham is like African peoples, and Yefet is European peoples, with some exceptions. It's not exactly like that. Because Ham, for example, Canaan comes from Ham, the Canaanites. The Canaanites lived in Israel, which is not in Africa. But Ham, Ham is a fad, the father of Canaan. So there are some exceptions to this. But generally speaking, Yefet is Europe, Ham is Africa, Shem is Asia. So we would expect the Persians to be like us from Shem, Semite. Semite comes from Shem. The, the term anti-Semitism, Semite, it comes from Shem. But they are not. The Talmud is saying, no, 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 no. The Persians are not Semites. They're not from Shem. Who are they from? They're from Yefet. Okay, and that's what the Talmud says, Uparsai, the Persians, Manalan de Miyefet Katu. How do we know that they come from Yefet, Dichtiv? Because it says over there in Parashat Noach, Bnei Yefet, the children of Yefet were Gomer, that was the first one, Umagog, Magog was the son of Yefet, so that implies Magog is a European people, Umadai, Veyavan, Yavan we all know, it's Greece, Vetuval, Umeshech, Vetiras. Those were the sons of Yefet. So these are all the European peoples. These are all the forefathers of all the European nations. So remember these terms, Meshech, Tuval, Ezekiel speaking to these, to, this, to these European peoples. And then the Talmud goes into each one. Gomer, who is Gomer? It says, Ze Germamia. Germamia. Some people see in that a clear allusion to Germany. Could be something else. There are different opinions of what that is. But definitely sounds like Gomer, sounds like Germany, Germamia. Magog, it says Zukandia. Kandia, don't worry, it's not Canada. There are different, there are also different girsaot. Um, the Talmud Yerushalmi says that instead of Kandia, it says Gitia or Gitnia. So we're not sure what that is. We don't know what that is, but Magog, that's a place. We mentioned last time, though, that Josephus, who's the earliest commentator that we have that tries to identify what Magog is, Josephus 2,000 years ago said that Magog is Scythia. And Scythia is today southern Russia, Crimea, that whole region of Crimea, Ukraine, southern Russia is Scythia. So Josephus already 2,000 years ago said that that's Magog. What was that? I'm just curious to know, what was that based on 2,000 years ago? I'm not familiar with the history of that area at the time. Josephus would have known the, his geography. He lived in Israel and, then, and finished his life in Rome. And so if he's saying that Magog is Scythia, then that's probably, that's about as good a source as we have. Because he's a... Closer to the source, basically. Huh? Closer to the source. Yeah, because he's saying 2,000 years ago, this is the reality, this is Magog. This area is Magog. So he's probably, he's probably as best as we have a source to identify Magog. The most ancient, certainly, probably the most accurate. So he says that it's Scythia, which is today Crimea and Ukraine, southern Ukraine, Russia. Yavan Kemashma'o, we all know that Yavan is Greece. And then it gives other names, what Tuval is and Meshech. We don't know what these names really don't mean anything to us. And then it says Tiras, the last one, who is Tiras? And the rabbis have a debate who Tiras is, but the conclusion is Tane Rav Yosef, Tiras Zuparas. 
So tiras is paras. And so paras is also like Magog, like Meshech, like Tuval, actually a European people. And that's really amazing because if you look at Persia itself, the name of we don't call it Persia today. We call it Iran. And why is it called Iran? That official name change happened only less than 100 years ago. I mean, they, Iran always really referred to themselves as Iran. They never referred to themselves as Persians. The rest of the world always referred to them as Persians. Their name is Iran. Why Iran? It comes from the same root as Aryan, like Aryan race, like the Nazis, the Aryan race. Not that they are Nazis, just that the root is the same because it comes from the, the name of the original Indo-European people. The original European ancestors are the forefathers of both the Europeans and also of the Iranians. And a small group of people in India, too. Exactly. That's why, that's why they're called Indo-European. So presumably they came from the Caucasus Mountains, which is also very close to Crimea. That's why we recall a white person, a Caucasian, because they came from the Caucasus. So this Aryan race would have come from the original white people, supposedly, came from the Caucasus Mountains and spread um, west to Europe, east to India. And so then you had like this Indo-European peoples and and there's a kind of Indo-European family of languages that they all fit under. So Persia is Iran, which shares a root with Aryan. And so it's interesting that historically one Aryan threat was neutralized in World War II. And not long after, another Aryan threat arose. Because today's greatest existential threat to the Jewish people into Israel is Iran. It's that simple. So it's interesting how that, that connection, the, the Aryans then and the Aryans here, which are really not related, but they perhaps spiritually related. So what we see from here, though, is that Persia and Magog, which is definitely some European entity, Scythia, looks like perhaps Russia, are actually related. And what's amazing is Yechezkel, when you continue reading Yechezkel, he says, who is the first ally of Magog in this war? The first person that he names is Paras. So he says, the allies, he continues, he says, God is against this person, and then he lists what, what God is going to do, and then he lists the allies of Magog, and the allies are Paras, is the first one, Persia, Kush, Ufut. Kush is, the Kushites is Africa, Fut is also thought to be in Africa. These are the main uh, allies of Magog, and Paras is first among them. So when we look at what's happening right now, in geopolitically, we mentioned that just in the last week, uh, Russia, Putin specifically, I don't want to say all of Russia, I should say Putin specifically uh, started bombing like civilian targets and all that, and he's been using Iranian missiles so, and Iranian drones, and the Russians are, and Iranians are cooperating very closely and always have, and in Syria they cooperate very closely, so Russia and Iran are, are great friends, and there's a reason for that. Actually, Russia has their own NATO. Their own NATO. You know, we have NATO in the West. Russia has a NATO also. I mean, it used to be the Warsaw Pact during the, during the Cold War, but that's obviously over. But since then, Russia came up with this new thing. Russia's answer to NATO is called the CSTO. It's the Collective Security Treaty Organization. So it actually has a mutual protection pact. There's six states, Armenia, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and Russia. So they have a mutual protection pact. And what's amazing is, fun fact, the only country, those are all former Soviet states, but the only country outside the former Soviet Union that was invited to join is Iran. Iran was invited to, Russia invited Iran to join. Iran didn't fully join. They're not a full member, they're an associate member. But they're basically together. So Russia and Iran have a very tight-knit alliance, even a military alliance between them. Now, if you remember, there's another prophecy. I'm sure you've heard it before. It's pretty common. If you remember in Bereshit, it says that Esav married some Canaanite women and his parents, Yitzhak and Rivka, of course, didn't like that. And when he saw that his parents didn't like his choice of marriage, he went and he married a daughter of Ishmael. Okay. 
Why? Because Ishmael is from like, kind of like their family, right? From the family of Abraham. And over there, you've probably heard our sages say that just like Esav went to Ishmael and married into the Ishmaelite family, so too in the end of days, the world of Esav, the world of Edom, and the world of Ishmael, the Arab world, the Muslim world, will unite against Israel, against you know, Itzhak, and, and cause a, a global conflict, a final, the final war. And the Vilna Gaon, actually, we're going to mention him several times. The Vilna Gaon summarizes this and explains spiritually why that is. Very interesting to just point that out as an aside. He wrote a commentary on one section of the Zohar called Sifra Ditzniuta. And in his commentary on that section, he said, Ve'esav Ishmael, he says, first he says, Hen yamina ve'smola ke'yadua shor ve'chamor. That they are, Esav and Ishmael are represented by the bull and the donkey. Esav, as it says in the Pasuk, Shor Parim Abirim, Esav is compared to a strong bull. Ve'ishmael, as we say, Shvulachem Poim Achamor, that when in the Akedah, when Avraham said Shvulachem Poim Achamor, it was actually, he was talking to Ishmael. Ishmael is also called a Pere Adam, like a wild donkey. So Ishmael is, is symbolized by a donkey, Esav is symbolized by a bull. And we'll see a lot of other animal associations as we continue. And then, who are they really spiritually? Vehen, Cain, Vehevel. They are Cain and Abel. Their spiritual root is in Cain and Abel. Veshelo is davgu zelazem, lo tacharosh b'shor v'chamor yachdav. That's why the Torah, one of the mitzvahs of the Torah, is that you're not allowed to yoke a donkey and a bull together. You're not allowed to, if you're working a farm, you can't combine two different species together, put a yoke on them to plow or to whatever you need to do, to pull a carriage. You're not allowed to mix two species. On the pshat reason is because it's not fair to the animals. It's like animal torture. One is stronger than the other. It's not going to be, it's not going to work out well. You got to use the same animal. Uh, that's the simple reason. The Kabbalistic reason, the Vilna Gon says, is you're not allowed to have, as the Torah says, to yoke together a bull and a donkey because they actually represent two very different forces. And combined, they are very destructive. This is also the secret of shatnez, that you know we're not allowed to wear a garment that has both wool and linen. That's the deeper, again, the Kabbalistic reason of why can't we wear. So this is one reason. Do we ultimately know God's reasons? No, but this is ta'amim, some, some explanations for the mitzvot on a Kabbalistic reason. We're not allowed to wear a garment where the linen and wool threads are intertwined into one thing. That's not a kosher garment. The secret of that is because, if you remember in the Garden of Eden, or outside the Garden of Eden, after that story, Cain and Abel, Cain brought an offering of, it says, a, a, some kind of a plant offering, and Abel brought an offering of sheep, meaning our sages say Cain brought linen, which grows from flax, and Abel brought wool from his sheep. And so that led to Cain killing Abel. And so since then, we do not combine on a spiritual reason, these two fabrics do not go together. Mystically, spiritually, they are not a good connection. So you can't wear wool and linen together, this is one of the reasons, because they represent two opposing forces. And putting them together has a destructive quality. Esav wanted to combine, to marry into the family of Ishmael, and that's how he would kill Yaakov. That's how he would get back at Yaakov. Because he, you know, he was after Yaakov, he kept getting thwarted. He said, if I marry into Ishmael, then spiritually we'll have the right mix that we'll be able to defeat, we'll be able to take on Yaakov. Yaakov, and so on. And that's why And that's why he went and he married the daughter of Ishmael. That's the spiritual use. So we have this prophecy that Ishmael and Edom will unite to cause a global war at the end of days. Edom is, Magog is Edom. Europe is Edom. And the third Rome, Moscow, the third Rome is always considered the capital of Edom, which we talked about last time. The red, Edom means red, the red empire. And Ishmael, Ishmael is the Muslims, right? So Ishmael is the, the Muslim world. So you have that in Iran. 
and in Russia's alliance could very well be a fulfillment of this prophecy of Esav and Ishmael coming together at the end of days to destroy the world. Make sense? Okay, good. Now, forward, fast forward a little bit in the same Masechet Yoma in the Talmud, page 77. We talked about the, the angels of the nations, the ministering, the prince, the heavenly princes, so to speak, of the 70 nations. What is the name, the Talmud identifies, the name of the angel of Paras? What is the name of the angel? Remember, angel names usually always end with El. El. Michael, Gabriel, Uriel, Raphael. Uh, so, who is the angel of Paras, of Persia? And the name of this angel is might sound funny, Dubiel. A Dubi, you know what a Dubi is? A Dubi is a teddy bear, uh, but Dov is a bear. The, the heavenly prince of the Persians is called Dubiel, like God's bear, the bear. What is the, why a bear? What is the connection? Across Jewish texts, the Persians are always compared to bears. It actually, it's, it's from the Tanakh. It's from Daniel. I know what you're going to say, and it's true. It's because Persians are also tend to be hairy. But that's, yeah, no, that's, that's a legitimate, that's the thing. They're, yeah. And, but it comes from Daniel. It comes from Daniel, chapter 7, the, his famous vision of the beasts. He, remember, he sees four great, terrifying, terrible beasts, and they correspond to the four great empires that oppress Israel. The first was Babylon. First, he saw a lion-like monster, and that was Babylon. And the second one was a bear-like monster. He says he sees something like a bear, and that's Persia. And then he sees a leopard, which is Greece. And then the last monster was the most terrible of them all, is Rome. So from Daniel itself, the beast that represents Persia is the bear. And so the heavenly prince, our sages say, of the Persians is called Dubiel. Whether that's his actual name or not is a separate question because we also have a, a tradition that we don't actually know the names of the angels. These are not their real names. These are names that we have for them, uh, but they actually, these are our kind of monikers, nicknames for these angels. They do have other, their real names are something else. So this is just how we describe them. Okay, so Dubiel is the prince of Iran. Why is that important? Because the Vilna Gaon said something incredible. The Vilna Gaon lived in the 1700s. He pointed out something. The, we consider Iran to be symbolized by a bear. But the whole world recognizes the bear as the symbol of Russia. Of Russia. <clears throat> Russia itself has always seen itself as a bear. That was their symbol for the 1980 Olympics even. Um, Russia, Putin's political party, their symbol is a bear. Uh, so the bear has always been, going back hundreds of years, to the very beginnings of Russia, they've always been symbolized by the great big bear. And the Vilna Gaon touched on that connection. What's the connection? Between, why is Russia this great bear? Why is it always depicted as a bear? The Vilna Gaon in the 1700s said that. Klipat Russia... He, Dubiel, Shirshu Klipat Paras. He's saying that the angel overseeing Russia is Dubiel. It's the same angel as Iran. And that's the bear connection. And he said that actually prophetically because he lived in the 1700s and he essentially suggested that Iran and, and Russia will unite at some point. And not just politically. But we're going to see, like, literally. Because what ended up happening shortly after the Vilna Gaon passed away. The Vilna Gaon passed away in 1797. Seven years later, in 1804, was the first Russo-Persian War. The Russian Empire was expanding. And they started expanding south into Iran. It was an easy target. Iran had a new, at the time, a new dynasty, the Qajar dynasty. And the Qajar dynasty was pretty religious Shiite, pretty fanatical. The grand vizier of Iran at the time was actually a Jew named Ibrahim Shirazi. He actually helped bring the Qajars to power. 
and then they turned on him and executed him in 1801. Now, he outwardly was a Muslim because there was, again, this was a very fanatical Muslim you know, group. They would not have a Jew in government. And they, I mean, it was an open secret that he was a Jew. His grandfather had, under pressure, nominally converted to Islam, but they still lived as Jews. In fact, back then, in the Persian Iranian government, if you were a government official or a person of influence, you, had to, you were expected to have multiple wives. If you only had one wife, it was like weird or you know, maybe it seemed like you were weak. Or... And, and uh, Ibrahim Shirazi had one wife, a Jewish wife. She was Jewish, like Mamash Jewish, not Muslim. And, among, and many other things. So it was kind of like an open secret that he's really a Jew. In f- to, hide, to help hide his Judaism, he specifically went on a hajj to Mecca. And when he came back, he made sure that everybody would always call him Ibrahim Haji. Right? Haji is like, it's a, a nickname for somebody who had been to the Holy Land. So he made sure that everybody called him that so that people would think that he's like a really genuine Muslim. In any case, he lasted until 1801, and then they got rid of the, the Jew. But he was the Grand Vizier, a very important figure in Iranian history. I've seen some Iranian scholars call him the greatest diplomat or the greatest statesman in Persian history, actually. Wow. And he was a Jew named Ibrahim Shirazi. And in 1801, he was executed. In 1804, Russia invaded Persia. They fought one war. They started conquering all those territories in the north, Azerbaijan, Armenia, etc., Georgia, uh, they conquered it out of, from Iran, and then they invaded again in 1826, took over more and more, slowly, slowly, Russia took over more and more of Iran. By 1907, Russia and England actually made a, a treaty to split Iran completely between them. So Iran was effectively uh, a vassal, mostly of Russia. Uh, the Shah Actually, his whole security force was Russian Cossacks. The Russians had a Cossack unit called the Persian Cossacks. And so the, 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 the Russian officers ran the, the whole country, the whole empire, and ran the security of the Shah. So when the Vilna Gaon said that Dubiel is Russia and Iran, he foresaw quite literally that they would become one entity. Amazingly. So that's Dubiel. I have a personal connection here. We have a personal connection to this because our family tree, the Palvinov family tree, goes back seven generations to the late 1700s. And the first person on our family tree was, is named Pinchas. And he lived in Isfahan in Iran, which is where Ibrahim Shirazi lived at one point at the same time. And Pinchas, his nickname in Farsi was Palivan. Palivan means the great one or whatever, the brave one, Hagibo, something like that, that he was, he was, we don't know why that was his nickname, but we know that was his nickname. He was, I guess, a man of influence and power. And so I like to think that him and Ibrahim Shirazi were friends, but I don't know. <laughs> they, they definitely would have overlapped and lived in Isfahan together at some point, because remember, he, he was executed in 1801, Shirazi. And we know that Pinchas who was called Palivan, that was his nickname in Farsi, moved, he fled Iran in the early 1800s to Bukhara. And a lot of Iranian Jews, Persian Jews, were fleeing because the Qajars, again, were very fanatic and were forcing Jews to convert to Islam. And there were a lot of persecutions against the Jews, so many fled to Bukhara, which is one of the reasons. Like the Bukharian community was always very close. The Bukharian Jewish community, which is today distinct from the Persian Jewish community, really, they're very close have a lot of similarities, even the language and so on and many other things. So there's a personal connection there. What what ended up happening is the Russians also took over Bukhara. Bukhara was an independent Khanate, but in 1866, Russia also took over. They were expanding into that whole territory, into Central Asia. In 1866, they took over Bukhara. In 1868, Bukhara became officially a part of the Russian Empire. And so Palivan, the nickname, became the Russian last name Palvanov. So that's where the Palvinov last name actually came from. Okay. It was a russification of a Farsi nickname of our ancestor going back seven generations, who was from Isfahan in Iran, which is really interesting. Funny side story, a few years ago I went to the mechanic here on Young Street. You know, Young Street's, well, it's the, lots of Persians live on Young Street. So I go to the mechanic, I come out of the car, 
And the guy greets me, says, oh, you're my brother, with like a Farsi accent. Uh, he tells me, you're my brother. And I said, uh, yeah. And he says he gives me his business card, and his last name is Palivan. And he looks at my last name, and he says, I know you're probably from Russia, but I, I know we have a tradition that our ancestors left and went to Russia, and we have like distant Persian-Russian ancestors somewhere in Russia, and finally I get to meet you, like all these wow. generations later. <laughs> he told me, I didn't even, like as soon as I came out of the car, he came to tell me this, so it was amazing. So I imagine that his family were those that didn't flee Isfahan from the persecution. From the persecutions, probably converted to Islam. And now, you know, seven generations later, we meet, you know, 200 years later in Canada of all places. So it's such a small world. Yeah, it's incredible. Uh, so that's the little per- personal connection to what was going on here with Russia and Iran and Dubiel. Um, and and the Bukharian community, which is like part Russian, part Persian. So I imagine the Bukharians are also under Dubiel. It's like part Russian, part Persian. And we're also hairy, so there you go. So we're under the same. Yeah. Okay, next. The next verse, back to Ezekiel, verse 6. Gomer v'chol it actually mentions Gomer again. And remember, Gomer is Girmamia. So regarding what we were talking about with the gas and with this whole thing and the European Union and what are they doing and with Russia, there's a lot more to the, I don't know what you want to call it, there's some international, perhaps it's an international conspiracy because Ezekiel is really saying it's a global war that will ultimately end in Israel. So if, even though we point the finger at Russia, there's a lot more going on behind the scenes than we really understand here. And all, really, all of Edom, the whole Western world, is really, nobody's so righteous in this, in this conflict. And, huh? They're cooking something. Yeah, exactly. And then he's saying, so, miyamim rabim tipaked ba'acharit hashanim tavo el eretz. So, Ezekiel is saying that this is going to happen a long time in the future. Ezekiel lived two and a half thousand years ago. He's saying, don't think that this is going to happen, like, soon. He's saying it's going to happen ba'acharit hashanim, at the end of years, at the end of days, at the very end of history. He will come, all this whole alliance, tavo el eretz meshovevet micherev. They will come to a land that just returned from some destruction. So they're coming to an Israel that was re-established after great destruction. That was re-gathered. Uh, the people were gathered from many nations. Al On back to their homeland in Israel. That have always been desolate. And we know that Israel, you know, until the Jews came and revived it in the last hundred years, it was mostly desolate. If you look at what... what People who came there in the late 1800s said, Mark Twain was there, Ulysses Grant was there. Look at what they wrote. It said it was empty. Mark Twain was there and he said, there's nothing here. We didn't see a single person along the whole way. Nothing. He said, the whole place is cursed, dead, and nobody is here. And that's why the British... Nothing growing in the ground. Nothing, nothing. It was a cursed land. Mark Twain was there. He wrote about it in his uh, journal of travel, Innocence Abroad, it's called... He describes it as a dead, cursed place. You have to read what he says about it, which is why the British wanted to give it to the Jews. As they said, they were going to give a land without a people to a people without a land. So make of that what you will. And of course, in today's world, nobody actually knows any history. And when it comes to the Arab-Israeli conflict, that's all, yeah. So we know what it was actually like, and that's what Ezekiel is saying, that this land has been desolate for a very long time, and the Jews finally return to their land and make it flourish, and are, very, and are prosperous. And Ko'amar, again, God is saying, So there's going to be like an evil plan, plot, ultimately against Israel. And they're going to come, they're going to come to take the spoils of Israel and so on. And they're going to attack al Kharavot Noshavot ve'el Am Me'usaf Migoin. So they're going to attack this new nation that was recently regathered from many nations. Osem Mikneve Kinyan, that's very successful economically. Yoshve al Tabura Aretz, that are living in Tabura Aretz means the navel of the world. The Israel is like the center of the world. It's described as Tabura Aretz. So now if we jump to Zechariah, I'll stop there with Ezekiel. I'm going to jump to Zechariah. 
Now look at his perspective on this war. Starting, that's what we just read on the first day of Sukkot. He's saying, So again, this day is coming, this great day of God. Israel will be divided up by foreign powers. That God will make it so that all the nations come against Jerusalem for one final war. And the ear will be conquered. And keep in mind that it's been a long, long ago proposed to make Jerusalem an international city under UN supervision with UN peacekeepers, that, that Jerusalem, because it's so contested, the Arabs want it, Israel wants it, they both claim it as their capital, make it a UN uh, capital, basically, uh, give it over to the UN. So that's been proposed a long, long time ago, and it's still mentioned here and there. So perhaps that relates to this, what Zechariah is saying here. So God himself and his legions will come to battle. Remember, God is always described in the Tanakh with very military terminology. Hashem Ishmilchama, Hashem Tzvaot, the God of legions, the God of war. His, his angels are always described with armor, with swords, drawn swords. If you think about throughout the Tanakh, God is described with military language. His angels are riding chariots and all this kind of thing. Okay, and this is where it gets interesting. As if God's own legs, so to speak, obviously not literally, will stand on the Mount of Olives. We all know the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. In the east side of Jerusalem. So the, the Mount of Olives will actually split in half and will form a deep valley. So it'll kind of cut the city, split the city in half almost. But the Mount of Olives will turn into a valley. There's another connection to Russia here, actually. Because if you've ever looked at the Mount of Olives, what's the most prominent thing that you see on it? That fortress, no? Isn't it? You see, it's unmistakable. You see a bunch of golden domes. What is that, you know? Police, police station. No, it's the Mary Magdalene Church. It's a Russian monast- church and monastery. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, the Church of Mary Magdalene. It was built by the Russians, by Tsar Alexander III in 1888. And they own that land. Ru- Russia owns that land. And they've actually, in recent months and years, Russia's been very bullish against Israel, trying to take back more of their land from Jerusalem. Like every Russian church, they want full jurisdiction and control over those areas. Just a few months ago, Russia, Putin, threatened Israel and said, you have to hand over another church in East Jerusalem, the Alexander Nevsky Church. So Russia's been very bullish against Israel, wanting to take more land from the Holy Land. Not only that, they just closed the Jewish agency in Russia. I don't know if you heard. They closed down, they forced the Jewish agency headquarters in Russia to close down. Partly because so many Russians are fleeing through the Jewish agency. Okay, so... Uh, the mountain will split, turn into a valley, and it'll be, it compares it to, Zechariah compares it to uh, the Ra'ash Be'yameh Uziyahu, that in the times of the king, Uziyahu Melech Yehuda, there was a great earthquake, a horrible, great, massive earthquake in Israel. It'll be like that earthquake. And then this is where it gets even more strange, because it says, So imagine this mountain like turning into a valley, and then on that day, Lo Or Yekarot Vekipa'on. There will not be light, it'll turn dark, and it'll be freezing. There will be a kipa'on. So this is where some people say, this almost sounds like a nuclear winter. Yeah. Right? It's, the sky is dark, and the mountain turned into a valley, the sky turns dark, it's cold. And then, It'll be like, people won't know what's it's a day, it's night. That in the, towards the evening, light will emerge again. I don't know if that means clouds will dissipate or whatever it is, but light will find the darkness, light will break through the darkness. And finally, So the waters of life will come back out of Yerushalayim. They will go out to the great seas around Israel. And uh, the waters will purify the land. And then the, the very famous pasuk that we know, The world will finally recognize the one true God, the single God. There will be the end of idolatry and all kinds of other nonsensical things, ideas.
and Israel will finally, and the Jews in Israel, Yeshvuba, uh, they will live Levetach securely without any more problems. And, and then it just mentions in verse 12, So there will be some kind of plague that, that God will bring about. And what will it be? So a person is standing on their feet and it's like their skin is almost like melting. And the eyes will like melt in their sockets. And like their tongues will melt. So that's why some people see it almost seems like a nuclear attack. So that's why some people see it nuclear. Keep in mind though that it says God will bring this about. So not necessarily that it'll be Russia or Iran or anybody else, but that God will bring this about as a punishment against against all the foreign, perhaps. In any case, there's going to be a resurrection of the dead. There's that follows actually, after. There's actually a, another clue that kind of, um, you know, when it says, it calls all the transportation, you know, that's right, that's right, that's right. That's right. And cars and they'll stop working, basically. That's right, exactly. It also says how people will come back on donkeys and mules and stuff, implying as if that there's not going to be, because of, when you detonate a nuclear weapon, you get an electromagnetic pulse that shuts down electricity. So it makes sense that, and then Mashiach will come on a donkey. Why would Mashiach come on a donkey? Why can't he come on a Lexus or something? <laughs> Why would Mashiach come on a donkey? Well, if there's an electromagnetic pulse and nothing's, nothing electronic is working, that it can very much make sense why Mashiach would come on a donkey. And there, there's another Vilna Gaon tradition. I didn't see it anywhere. I did not see it written anywhere. But it's supposedly or presumably a tra- oral tradition going back to the Vilna Gaon that, that, who said that the War of Gog and Magog will only last 12 minutes. And some people see within that as well. Again, I don't, I've never seen it with my own eyes written anywhere. It's an oral tradition. Yeah, it's a common one. And some people say that sounds like something nuclear, where within 12 minutes you can definitely create a lot of damage. And so what's the connection to Sukkot here? What's the connection to Sukkot? Because the last verse in, this, in the Haftarah, V'aya kol hanotar mikol agoim, whoever is left from the nations, will come, Habayim al Yerushalayim, ve'alum midei shana b'shana, they will come henceforth every year to Jerusalem, le'ishtachavot le'melech Hashem tzvaot, again, God is described as the God of legions, to worship God, ve'lachog et chag ha-sukot. So after this, the nations will come every year on Sukkot to celebrate with the Jews together Sukkot. So Sukkot will become a global holiday, no longer just a Jewish holiday, but a global holiday. And that's, one of, that's the main reason why we read this Haftarah on Sukkot. Because in the end of days, eventually in the Messianic age, all the nations of the world will come to celebrate Sukkot with the Jews in Jerusalem. You know, everybody will be at peace and it'll be... Fantastic. And so Sukkot, actually, our sages said, Sukkot was always secretly an international festival because what do we do on Sukkot? We would sacrifice bulls. How many bulls do we sacrifice on Sukkot? 70 bulls. Over the course of Sukkot in the ancient times, in the times of the temple, they would sacrifice 70 bulls, one for each nation. So our sages say, if the nations knew what we did in the temple, they would have never destroyed it. If they knew that we sacrifice on their behalf in the temple and how much blessing that actually brings them through these offerings and sacrifices and prayers, they would have never destroyed the temple because we actually bring Shefa to them they, through doing that, the 70 bulls in the temple. And the number 70 is tied to Sukkot and is tied to Gog Magog. In fact, if you like Gimatria, the value of Gog Magog is 70. Gimel, Vav, Gimel, Vav, Mem, Gimel, Vav, Gimel is 70. So Gogu Magog is 70. If you like more coincidental numbers, if you're a numerologist, um, it was actually Putin's birthday recently, actually same, October 7th, same birthday as you, and he turned 70 years old, so I don't know if that means anything to you, but uh, Putin is 70. Actually, I looked up his Jewish birthday, he's not Jewish, but let's say you were on the Hebrew calendar, Guess when he was born? On the Hebrew calendar, Yud Chet B'Tishrei. He was born on Sukkot. He was born on the fourth day of Sukkot, which is right now. Right now, we just started the fourth day of Sukkot. So right now is Putin's Hebrew birthday. 
If he was a Jew, he would be celebrating, but he's not, thankfully, so he's not <laughs> celebrating. Uh, but uh, to, right now is his Hebrew on his calendar, his Hebrew birthday is Sukkot. So he was born on Sukkot, he just turned 70. I don't know if this has anything to do with it, but Gogu Magog is 70, the 70 bulls of Sukkot. Some very interesting, again, some people like numerology, some people hate it, make of that what you will. Those are interesting coincidences, or not coincidences. And finally, I'm gonna end with the Zohar on Balak, because this is, the, the Zohar is arranged according to weekly Parsha. The section on Balak is one of the longest, maybe even the longest, I'm not, there's a couple that are really long. The Zohar on Balak, Balak is very long, lots of prophecies, why? Because Parashat Balak is where Bilam gives his prophecies about the future. And it's, it says there, Acharit Ayamim. It's one of the few places in the Torah where Bilam says, I'll tell you what's going to happen in the end of days. Again, just like Ezekiel said, end of days. And Bilam is saying end of days. So we, got, we, have, we have the perspective of Ezekiel. We saw what he says about Gogu Magog. Zechariah talks about Gogu Magog, but more specifically, what's going to happen in Jerusalem. Right? Zechariah is telling us the description of Jerusalem, Ezekiel more globally. And now Bilam, the Zohar is saying, is explaining what Bilam is saying. So it's three different prophets. And Bilam is a non-Jewish prophet, so that's also interesting. So the Zohar is saying, Bilam, he, quoting Bilam, Bilam said, I see it, but it's not now. It's in the very distant future. And the Zohar says, of course, uh, these words, this will happen in the future time, in the time in the Messianic age, before Mashiach comes. He's talking about the time before Mashiach. Just like we saw from Ezekiel and Zechariah, God will make it so that before this, Jerusalem will be rebuilt. The Jews will return. First, there will be a, a kibbutz galuyot will begin. Jews will start coming back to Israel, rebuild Israel, rebuild Jerusalem. So God will make it that before all this, Israel will already be, Jerusalem will be rebuilt. Yeah. <laughs> so a star will appear in the sky, some kind of star that's going to have 70 lights and 70, whatever that is, 70 spirits of light flowing from it. And it'll appear in the sky, in the rakia. Uh, so that it'll shine, velahit ein yomin, this bizarre light in the sky will shine for 70 days. And then, Uveyoma Shtita, on the sixth day, Yomin Shatita. So on the sixth, on a Friday, apparently, of the 25th of the sixth month, which is Elul. So on the 25th of Elul, something's going to happen. Why the 25th of Elul? Why is that important? We talked about that recently. What's the 20th? The creation of the world. That's when God, Tishrei, the first of Tishrei was when Adam was created. That was the sixth day. So take five days back. The 25th of Elul was when God first began creation, the creation of light. And now there's going to be a bizarre light appearing in the sky. Now, really, I looked up the calendar for many years forward, if the 25th of Elul ever falls on a Friday, and I couldn't find in the near future the 25th of Elul ever falling on a Friday. So I don't know if this here means Yom HaShatita really means Friday or what. We're not sure what that means. I did also hear another oral tradition of the Vilna Gaon, something that I heard and never saw, that apparently the Vilna Gaon said that it should say the 23rd of Elul, not the 25th of Elul. I don't know. I haven't seen it. That's what they say. So, Veit Kanish Bayom Lesof Ein Yomin. So this will be at the end of 70 days. Okay, now... What's going to happen? Yom Bekarta de Roma. On the first day, it'll appear in the city of Rome, the third Rome. Okay, so if that's Moscow, then perhaps over Moscow, a star will appear. Vehau Yoma, on that day, Yin Pelun Gimel Shurin Ilain. Three tall towers will fall from that city. Mehahi Karta de Romi, from the city of Rome. And a great palace will fall in Pol. And the ruler of that city will die. Henceforth, that there will be a global war. There will be great wars all over the world will be fought. It will be like mass chaos. What's interesting as a side note is some people saw in this, go back 21, 21 years ago, to 9-11, when 9-11 happened, tragically. 
I remember we saw this back then, that people were saying, using, citing the Zohar as if it's a, 9-11 was a fulfillment of the Zohar, because it says three tall towers, Gimel Shuri Nilain, will fall. So people say that's World Trade Center 1, 2, and 7, because World Trade Center 7 also bizarrely and inexplicably, yeah, bizarrely and inexplicably seemed to just tumble down. So three towers came down on the World Trade Center, and the Pentagon was hit. So some people say that's the Eichal Rava. The Pentagon's the world's largest office building. So some people say that was the Eichal Rava that's mentioned here. That's what people said. And 9-11 on the Jewish calendar was the 23rd of Elul, because it was in September. It was in Elul, wow. but, it was, but it was not a Friday. It was a Tuesday. So does that mean George Bush was the Magad? Well, <laughs> funny enough, George Bush's nickname was Magog in his Skulls and Bones Society, in his secret club, yeah. Uh, so that was... George. But, but we, we met George Bush a few me- weeks ago, and he's, he's uh, I don't know, seems harmless. Because <laughs> uh, he was here. He was here with Stephen Harper um, earlier in September. So, but anyway, yeah, his nickname apparently was Magog. But no, because here the Zohar is saying it cannot be that the Zohar is talking about 9-11. Because, first of all, um, the the ruler of the city or the United States did not die. Um, It's the idea of a great palace falling, destroying, that didn't happen either. Like, it was not the White House, the Pentagon did not fall apart, so there was no great palace, the ruler did not die. It did not happen on the 25th of Elul, it was not a Friday. Many other, there was no star in the sky that was shining for 70. It did lead to a bunch of wars, but not the wars that it's talking about here. This is talking about, like, a global thing, not just Afghanistan, Iraq, or whatever, something much bigger than that. So it cannot be that this is talking about 9-11. So I just wanted to point that out because... I remember this very clearly, even 20 years ago, that people were pointing this out and saying that must have been, you know, the fulfillment of this. So, and it wasn't. So what needs to happen is the third Rome will fall, its president will die, and then a set of global wars will occur. And then, in that day when the star will appear, the land of Israel will shake. Remember what what the prophet said about the great earthquake in Israel, in Jerusalem. It'll shake, memhei milin, 45 miles, it'll open up, there's going to be a huge earthquake, under, in the place of, atar dehava be'migdasha, where the temple once stood. Which, for obvious reasons, we need that to happen. So, umeratachada, and a, a cave, and a cave will be revealed from deep underground. A great fire will emerge that will burn the world. And one great bird will emerge from that cave. A bird. Some, some versions of the text say anafa, a great branch. But it should really say a great bird. And who is that great bird? Who will eventually rule the world. He will receive the kingdom. And he is, of course, He is Melech HaMashiach. Why is he called a bird? The Zohar refers to the place where Mashiach's soul is as Kantzipo, the bird's nest. For various reasons, which we don't have time now, maybe another time, Mashiach is referred to as a bird. Um, almost like the, uh, um, the phoenix, kind of like this great, this great cave will be revealed, there will be a great fire that will emerge, and this bird will, almost like the resurrection of the phoenix idea. And there will be at that time many haters of Israel, as we know, that's very plain to see. Uh, many haters of Israel all over the world. But, uh, you know, they'll get their comeuppance. And the, the dead will be resurrected at that time, eventually. That's the end of the, of the Zohar passage. Okay, so what does that have to do with Sukkot? Because there's all these wars happening, presumably on Sukkot. There's various traditions that this will take place on Sukkot, specifically on Hoshana Rabbah, which is the last day of Sukkot, before Shemini Atzeret, is Hoshana Rabbah, which means the great salvation. We expect to hopefully be saved on Hoshana Rabbah. 
And of course, the last thing I want to just finish with this, when we have prophecies, we have a rule in Judaism that a negative prophecy does not have to be fulfilled. God gives a negative prophecy as a warning. That's what we read on Yom Kippur with Yonah. God told Yonah to go to Nineveh and warn them that you will be destroyed. And then they repented. And so God didn't destroy them. So the whole lesson there is that we can repent and we can avoid a negative prophecy. The rule in Judaism is that positive prophecies for sure will be fulfilled. But negative prophecies don't have to be fulfilled. Because they're given as a warning. It's like when a parent tells their child, if you promise them something, a reward, you will give them that reward because you promised it to them. But when you promise them punishment for something, if they don't do something, and then they avoid that thing that you didn't want them to do, you're not going to punish them. So it was a prophecy that was meant as a warning with the hope that it wouldn't be fulfilled. So positive prophecies are always fulfilled. Negative prophecies don't have to be. So we still have a chance to hopefully avoid the catastrophe. Because remember, when Rabbi Yoshua met Mashiach at the gates of Rome, which we mentioned last time, he told him that I'll come today, if we listen to God and repent and everybody really did what God wanted, Mashiach would come immediately in a positive way, on a cloud and everything would be immediate, instant world peace. And if not, then there's all this kind of punishment and retribution that needs to take place. There was a lot of bad stuff that was left out here. (laughs) There was. (laughs) But but let's hope that we don't have to experience those bad things. And let's hope that our prayers during this high holiday season and our tshuva made some kind of dent in in heaven. And and hopefully we can avoid some of this. And hopefully we'll see Mashiach come in a positive, peaceful way without any suffering for anybody. And we'll see global peace very soon, God willing. Thank you. We'll end there. Thank you very much.